Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. Join Tyler and his team as they unlock the secrets to achieving financial independence through wealth building strategies inspired by Robert Kiyosaki and other thought provoking leaders. Learn to build leveraged streams of cash flow that land in your pocket and improve your quality of life. Gain access to cutting edge ideas that will increase your productivity and streamline your success. Find out how to supercharge your retirement plan so you won't have to retire with a pay cut. You can escape the rat race. Are you ready? It's time to learn to earn with Tyler Chef. Welcome to Cashflow Guys Podcast. It's that time again. Hopefully, you're listening to this on Friday morning. By the time you're listening to this episode, I am going to be heading up to my property, something I did recently for myself, and I want to kind of start the episode right there is we got a lot going on in the world, right? A lot of things going on, and sometimes you need to take a break and unplug, and that's exactly what uh, I did. We, we bought some property uh, off the grid type of situation where we can go up there, unplug, uh, relax, just kind of chill out and uh have a good time, hang out in the woods, take in nature. And it's important to do that every once in a while. So all of you listening to this episode, take a minute for yourself. Go out and enjoy some nature. I'm here to tell you, uh, it, it, this is a beautiful thing. If you can get out there and take some time for you, go to the beach. If you live in Florida or somewhere there is a beach, go to the lake. If you're, if you're up north or something like that, go out and experience a little bit of nature. But today I want to talk about make it improve it and that's how this came about really is, is there's a lot of people I'm seeing that are having a difficult time finding opportunity right now, right there. And, and this applies to most people. They're just having a, a challenge finding good properties to acquire, whether that be to flip and fix and flip or to uh, buy and hold or, or whatever they're doing. It's a challenge finding opportunity right now. It's a challenge for everybody, right? Nobody is exempt from this. Even we have a challenge with this. There was a time not too long ago where we had more opportunity we knew to shake a stick at. And lately, what we found is that it's a combination of folks simply not being motivated to sell or they're not, uh, there's there's a lot of folks that are, you know, a lot of media coverage and whatnot about how hot the market is. And there's a lot of sellers out there that are doing what any normal person would do is they're capitalizing on an up market. So they're selling mainly because they feel, and this is what I'm I'm finding out by talking to a lot of brokers and a lot of sellers, is that they're they're just simply selling because they're trying to capitalize on on an up market, and when that's the case, it's difficult to negotiate great deals if there's no compelling need besides that. Right? You need some compelling need, some motivation from the seller in addition to, I just want to sell my property and get top dollar. You need more than that. You need a reason, like a, a pit in their stomach, some pain, some issues. Why they need a, a why? They're a really strong why. Like you know, I'm having brain surgery, and if I don't get it tomorrow my head will explode or something like that. Some sort of compelling need. I'm about to go into foreclosure or my aunt Susie died. And I'd like to get a new Lambo or something like that. Um, some sort of, of compelling need to motivate them to take action, to sell it. That also motivates them to negotiate with you. So, and I'll be honest with you. I believed that I would not, I, I would never be selling any of the properties that we have. And recently I've thrown a couple of them up on the market just to see what would happen. And guess what? They're selling. Now, the reason why I'm selling some of them is to capitalize on an up market. The market is what it is. Folks want to invest. They want to get their money moving. They want to, they want to buy other properties. Great. Knock yourself out. You know, I'll, 
everything I always say, everything I have is for sale at the right price, except for my integrity and my honor. Those things will never be for sale, but every tangible asset that I own is for sale at the right place. You want to buy my Jeep? I'll sell you my Jeep. It's a hundred thousand dollars. People are like, I'm not giving you a hundred grand for your Jeep. Well, that's because you don't perceive the value of the Jeep to be worth a hundred thousand dollars. But for me to go out and get another Jeep that is brand new, that's a 2017, not a 2018. Cause I like the, the subtle differences and it has, and then is, is, uh, customize the way I've customized mine for me to go duplicate that product. I would want you to give me a hundred thousand dollars before I'd be willing to take that project on again. Now, dollars and cents. Have I paid a hundred thousand for the Jeep? No, absolutely not. I've only paid, I don't know, by this point I'm about uh, 50 grand with customizations total in the Jeep, right? Not a big deal. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. I never really sat back to, to figure it out. My point is to me, the perceived value is a hundred thousand because I don't want to go have to go out and duplicate the process. Well, in real estate, sometimes that also trickles over. It doesn't mean that's right or wrong. It just means that's what somebody wants for the property. So let's step back for a second and pretend that we're not in a quote-unquote seller's market, which, by the way, I hate the term seller's market because that indicates that somebody's in charge. And at the end of the day, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that sellers sell for reasons, and if you can meet their reasoning for selling and their motivation and give them either the price or terms that make sense or a solution to their problem that you can have a successful transaction. When you get, I've got seller's mindset stuck in the brain, then you're going to walk in and wind up overpaying for properties. That's just reality. That's how it works. That's psychology. Um, so when you're out looking for opportunity, you got to start with finding out why they're selling. So and we, I talk about this a lot. The reason why sometimes I repeat myself is not because I'm losing my mind, although that may be entirely possible, the reason why I repeat myself is because even though people have heard me say these things in the past, they don't listen. And then they get themselves in hot water. And then they give me the look like you never told me. It's like, oh, I absolutely did tell you on episode 1, 9, 7, 25, 27, 44, uh, 70, 65. <laughs> All these different episodes, eventually maybe it'll sink in, right? Today I want to talk about really making folks prove what the deal is. So that said, you've got... Realtors, real estate agents or brokers, whichever you want to call them. You've got wholesalers and you've got sellers, right? All these folks are out there to sell you a property, right? I fall under two of those categories. I've been a seller and, and well, three, actually. I've, been a, I've, I've done some wholesale transactions. I've done uh, buy, uh, worked as a realtor and I've also sold my own properties. So I've worn all three hats. That said, what I find interesting is nobody has ever made me prove the value of the property that I'm selling. I find that interesting. And as many properties as I've sold, which as I can tell you as a realtor, I've lost track. Hundreds, maybe thousands, who knows? Maybe not thousands, but in the high hundreds, six, seven, eight hundred properties over my career that I've sold, a lot of transactions. Nobody's ever made me prove the value. Instead, what they've done is prove the value to themselves or the impended value when they get a mortgage by going out and getting appraisal, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode. Now I want to talk about Get, you know, what is a deal, right? First of all, it starts with being in the eye of the beholder. So the first question I have with that is, if it's such a great deal, then why is it for sale? I mean, really, who who advertises a great deal? Have you ever heard of, a, ever found a property marketed anywhere? And, oh my gosh, it's a great deal. Just the price it's at, let me buy it. Well, only if you're in love with the property. If it's on the water, maybe it's got a boat dock out front or out back, or I don't know, maybe it's the the perfect sunset view or 
there's some other reason. It's got a big bathroom or a beautiful kitchen. You fall in love. So the price really doesn't matter. It's not the price that you love, folks. It's the it's the house, right? It's the individual property. But as an investor, you can't really buy property that way because you're going to get yourself in hot water. So with that, uh, if it's such a great deal, you ask them, why is it for sale? You got to know why it's for sale. You absolutely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, need to know the answer to this question. It's the most important question you can ask. Second most important question is, when you sell this beautiful house, what are you going to do with all that money? Now, as I said in the past, how you answer that, or how you ask that question is going to impact how, what your answer is and how it's delivered. So if they say they're there to capitalize on an up market, okay, nothing wrong with that. I mean, any, any reasonable person would probably want to capitalize on an up market, right? If they're a home flipper, then in the house is freshly renovated, you, one could assume that they are selling it because they want to make a profit because they bought it cheap and they fixed it up and they want to sell it. Nothing wrong with that either. But just because it's freshly renovated doesn't mean that it's a flip. It could mean that they read some blog post somewhere that said you should fix your house up before you sell it, which depending on the level of repairs that you do or what's going on in that particular situation may be very solid advice. Some may think that's ridiculous advice. Others would think that's very solid advice. I would say it flat out depends. It depends on what's going on in that person's world and that person's situation. If the house was an absolute train wreck and they could sell it for five grand, or instead they put 50 grand into it and now it'll sell for a hundred, well, that just makes good sense now, doesn't it? That said, if they put 50,000 into it and sell it for 40, well, that's a problem because they just lost 10 grand, right? So what you'll find a lot is people are in a rush, right? The seller, they're, everybody's hot, hot, hot. You got to get it now, got to get it now. If you guys follow me on Facebook, you've seen the poster. I had some, we got some, some bottom feeders in my market that they, they're, they're realtors, which is sad. They're, they're realtors and they, they, they call themselves a wholesale brokerage, right? And that automatically makes me nervous when I hear that. I think, oh, what kind of people are getting nuked there? And what goes on basically is instead of representing a seller like an ethical broker and getting high, highest and best or you know, getting deals done that help the seller the most and sitting down with the seller and discovering their problem, instead what they do is they beat the sellers down and, and, and get the seller to basically give the house away. And then they find buyers that don't know any better, newbie buyers. They, they go to real estate meetings. They search out rookie buyers. They, they can tell who the rookies are. Everybody knows who the rookies are in the real estate meetings. There's no way of hiding that, trust me. They will go to the real estate meetings, find these rookie buyers, and then get them to give you a non-refundable deposit. They take a non-refundable deposit. They tell you that you can't go out and see the property because if you do, then they're going to sell it to another buyer tomorrow, so you've got to make a decision right now. They say the ARV which is, stands for after repair value, ARV is X. Oh, it's going to be worth 300000 when you fix it up. Sure, after you put four hundred grand in it, it might be worth 300000 but not today it won't. The thing's a train wreck. So they, they strong-arm you into buying property, and, well, that's a problem. We talked about that in a previous episode. I'm not going to beat that all to get all up all over again. But that said, why are they in such a rush? If, if you don't can't figure out or they won't tell you why they're in such a rush, I would be leery right there, right? I would be a little questioning of what's going on. It's like, what is the big deal and, and why Why is it such a big secret? I need, is there something wrong with this house? Is it on a sinkhole? Is it on a cliff? Is it going to fall into the ocean? What's the story? And see what they say. A lot of times they're using it, a high-pressure sales tactic to get you to pull the trigger. Real estate agents are famous for this, frankly. Uh, I see this more than anything else from real estate agents. Boy, you know, the market's up. You better get get it now before somebody else does. And I'm going to go ahead and say there is some truth to that. 
There's a lot of truth to that because we've had situations where people are fist fighting over houses. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Getting into these bidding wars and down in St. Petersburg about a year or two ago, they had two guys were literally in a fist fight over whoever won the fight got to got to write the offer for the house. And it's like that. I've never seen anything, anything so crazy in my entire life, but it happens, right? It happens. It's the reality of what happens. I don't know what to tell you, but it's, it's what happens. So that is where we are. That's the, the, the mindset of a lot of buyers out there, which is unfortunate because when you get that, that fear of missing out, we've done an episode on that a while back called FOMO fear of missing out. That's when you start making irrational buying decisions. There's people sitting around twiddling their thumbs. I've had people that have been students of mine that, you know, buying rental property and getting good deals put together takes time and they just simply can't wait. They have that gambling mentality. They're gamblers, right? They've got to, they got to get things going right now or they can't wait. Uh, however long it may take to put a deal together, they got to get something right now. They don't get that fix that I got to get a deal. I got to get a deal. I got to get a deal. They run right out and buy anything just to quote unquote, get a deal. And ladies and gentlemen, talk about financial suicide. Ugh. So I know some of you are going to run out and try to flip a house anyway. I know you are. I, I know I talked to you guys on the phone enough to know that I, you, you're going to you listen to me and go, that's great advice, Tyler. I'm not going to follow it, though. I'm going to go chase my dream of being a house flipper. I don't care if it's risky. I'm going to do it anyway because even though I'm new, it will work great for me because they do it on television. So in the spirit of that, I want to talk about valuation for flippers and speculators. Okay. Now, I've talked to death on valuating income properties. And remember, I have a free course out there to, to teach you how to to uh, come up with a value, how to, how to analyze a deal for an income property. That's a rental property, their house or apartment building or office complex or whatever. If you want that course, that's absolutely free. Go to cashflowguys.com forward slash mailbox money. That's cashflowguys.com forward slash mailbox money. It's four videos and it shows you exactly how to analyze a rental property deal. But today we're going to talk about flips. Okay. So begin with using an FHA, using FHA appraisal guidelines. Here's why. People say, I don't want to use FHA appraisal guidelines. I want to use what uh, Bigger Pockets taught me. Well, here's the deal. Bigger Pockets isn't buying your house, okay? And remember, nothing against Bigger Pockets, but they're surrounded. Bigger Pockets is a forum of opinion. And of course, I guess so is this podcast for that degree. But understand that not everybody there has much experience. A lot of folks on there are new. And, you know, I heard this and then they pass on the information. Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm somebody that's out in the field doing the deal, as are my, my team. And what you need to understand as a house flipper, if you're going to buy a house and sell it, if, or if you're just this guy that wants a girl wants to sell their house, you have to focus first on what's going through the buyer's mind and what is the buyer going to do to determine value. Now, if they're a cash buyer, um, they'll probably buy off emotion because that's what cash buyers do a lot of times, which is why I always tell people when you're new, don't use your own cash because you won't, you're, you'll be more careless with your own cash than you will with the banks or somebody else's. And more importantly, the bank's going to require an appraisal. A hard money lender is going to require an appraisal in a lot of cases to prove the value. So that said, by using FHA appraisal guidelines, your end buyer, statistically, unless you're in some million dollar house, statistically, your end buyer is going to use either an FHA, VA, or some sort of a blended conventional mortgage. And because of that, that being the case, they're going to follow FHA appraisal guidelines because there has to be appraisers. Appraisers have to have some standard to hold up to. Right. And I say that tongue in cheek, they, they have to use guidelines and the, the, the most widely acceptable 
guidelines looked at upon by the courts and by the banks and all the different lending institutions is the FHA appraisal guidelines. Now, uh, the reason why you're going to use FHA appraisal guidelines, again, is because your buyers are going to wind up probably using an FHA mortgage. And even if they use a conventional mortgage, there's a pretty good chance that the appraiser is going to use FHA appraisal guidelines as a, as a guideline, as a, as a measuring stick to, to come up with a system to give evaluation that will pass the underwriter's muster or, or the underwriter's inspection. So don't think, for example, that recent foreclosures in the area won't impact the appraiser's judgment. I want to be clear on that. Now, according to the FHA appraisal guidelines, and I know I'm contradicting myself, but hear me out. They're not supposed to use, they're used, you're supposed to use similar transactions, which means if your house is nice and pretty and recently flipped, they're supposed to use nice and pretty recently flipped houses as comparables. However, if the appraiser sees that there are a ton of foreclosures in your area, although they can't show it on paper that they use one of those as a comparable, they can absolutely get suspicious of the market and think it's an inflated market and therefore be more conservative because of what they see in the sales results, even if they don't use those sales results. So coming up in a few weeks, we're going to do a webinar to show you guys some software that we've uh, been, that's been brought to our attention or my attention that I think is pretty cool. And uh, my team is starting to use it now to help our buyers. We're getting, get starting to get comfortable with it. And what it does basically is tells you what the area, what areas have been heavy concentration of flips versus light concentration of flips, depending on the market, depending on the appraiser, if there's a, a bunch of flips in an area, that may make an appraiser either more conservative or less conservative. It depends on the appraiser, but it's important for you to know at least what's going on, right? So in short, what's happened in the past in regard to a buyer's perceived value impacts the value of your property now and in the future, okay? You need to understand that. Whatever the buyer feels at the end of the day, is what is going to have an impact over what they pay. So, for example, they just recently released uh, this week that they're raising rates again. They're talking about several federal interest rate hikes, right? That makes national news. Everybody gets all excited. And what initially happens is everybody that was on the fence about buying a house suddenly runs out and buys a house and, and just to capitalize on the current today rates. Now, in a lot of cases... They've said they were going to raise the rates. People panicked, ran out and bought a house, and then they didn't raise the rates. Okay, well, okay, I guess you capitalize on today's value, but remember what happened during the housing crisis, guys. When you speculate on things, you're running out doing things half-cocked, that's when you get yourself in trouble. So that said, don't get all hyped up over a quarter percent interest rate hike unless you simply do the math. What is it going to cost you, 8 bucks a month? Is it worth paying $20,000 more in a rush on a house that you didn't do your homework on? that needs another $10,000 in work that you didn't pay attention to just to save eight bucks a month? No, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. So let's talk about the FHA guidelines real quick. The loose, this is just the kind of the 10,000 mile view or 10,000 10, foot view of what some of the guidelines are. And there will be fluctuations in this depending on where you are, what market you're in and whatnot. But generally speaking, the guidelines are when they look for comparable sales, okay? I'm, I'm talking about the comparable sales method. When they're looking for comps, comparable sale, as what we know as ARV, right? Which, by the way, guys, ARV is really, a, it's a total guess. You can't sit there and say it'll be worth this after such and such in repairs because nobody knows what the repairs are going to look like, the quality of the repairs, the quality of the materials, what the market will do down the road. It's complete speculation, which means even an appraisal, 
is a speculative speculative thing. It's an art, not a science. If you look at any real estate book, textbook, it will tell you it is an art, not a science. Art, not a science. So it's not exact. So the guidelines are your comparable sales should be within a quarter mile radius of the subject property. And for definition, the subject property is the one you're buying, right? Or the one you're selling. The construction, now, what if it's not in a quarter mile radius? What if you pull a quarter mile radius and there are no comparable sales? Well, then they are instructed to go out a half mile, three quarters of a mile, a mile like that in, in, in graduated steps until they find three, four, five good comparable sales that are relevant comparables, okay? Um, similar construction type, talking about relevancy. For example, if you've got a one-story ranch as a comparable sale, but you're trying to come up with a value of a two-story Victorian house, a one-story ranch is not going to be a solid comparable for a two-bedroom or two-story Victorian wood-frame house. You need to find houses of similar kind. So if you are doing a market analysis or you're doing an appraisal on a two-story Victorian home, you should be first looking for two-story Victorian homes. Now, what do you do if, as I know, the next question is, well, what if there are no, what if I'm the only two-story Victorian home in the neighborhood? Well, that's the first thing that you should think about is, is it a good thing being somebody that's getting ready to sell a house to be the biggest, baddest house in the neighborhood or to be the odd, the odd duck in the neighborhood? Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing. Whether that is or isn't uh, really depends on your local market and leverage the experience of more experienced investors in your market to know for sure. That said, um, size, right? It should be plus or minus 20% of the square footage of your house. So the whatever comparable you use should be within 20% of the square footage of your house. So if, if you got a house that's 1,000 square foot, you'd be looking for something that's 20% smaller within 20, no less than or no more than 20% smaller or 20% larger than yours. Again, you ask the question, what these are guidelines, not laws. What if there are no houses within 20% of my, my house? What if I'm the smallest house in the neighborhood? What if I'm the biggest house in the neighborhood? Well, if that's the case, then maybe take it up to 30%, maybe take it up to 40%. Maybe you just have to do adjustments, right? But they or use smaller houses or use, use larger houses and talk and do adjustments, which we'll talk about adjustments in just a second. Try to match up the bedroom and bath configuration. In other words, if you're looking at a one-bedroom, one-bath house, don't use a three-bedroom, two-bath house as a comparable. Try to find another one-bedroom, one-bath house. Now, I say that because there's not a lot of one-bedroom, one-bath houses. Thus, usually most houses have two bedrooms at a minimum. And frankly, there are more three-bedroom houses in America these days than there are two-bedroom houses, what I've read recently. Second, stay within, the next thing would be, stay within the 10 to 15 years of the build date. So stay within 10 to 15 years of the build date. Don't go beyond that. Don't compare an 1876 Victorian to a, a 2017 ranch. That doesn't make that. Those are not even close in comparables. Now, the sales comparison approach requires adjustments to be made. This is because no two properties are identical. I don't care if they were built on the same day by the same builder and they're the same color and the same everything. They're going to wear differently, right? There's going to be some subtle differences. Those could have an impact on the valuation. So you have to make adjustments for any differences between the subject property and each of the comparable sales. That said, I want to make sure that you understand at no time do you make adjustments to the value of the subject property, okay, in this process. Instead, you make adjustments to the comparable sales to make them match the subject property. 
Okay, because remember, we haven't even determined the value of the subject property yet. We're using comparable sales to determine what that is. So that said, uh, adjustments are made for transactional differences. First of all, you got to understand that. So that means changes in market conditions since the last date of the sale. And, and let's say if it's, it's, there's different financing. Let's say if one was a VA mortgage, a veterans administration mortgage and the VA, they financed all their closing costs. Well, that may artificially inflate the sales price of the property. So the appraiser is going to dig into that to find out, is that the case where the values inflated because of it and then make the necessary adjustments. Okay. Size, location, you're going to make those adjustments. So if the, if the other property is larger or smaller, you're going to make adjustments to the value of the sold property because that's a known value. You can make adjustments to that. Okay. All adjustments necessary to achieve the maximum degree of similarity must be to each comparable property and not to the subject property. Please don't make adjustments to the subject property. The intent here is to adjust the comparable property to make it as similar to the subject property as possible. Then you can take that final data and then come up with a value for your subject property based on that. I know this sounds a little squirrely, but I want you to actually try this. If a comparable property is inferior to the subject property on a specific feature, then you need to make an upward adjustment to that comparable property, which basically means what we're doing is we're going to add additional value to that comparable property for what it's missing. That equalizes it to the other one. So let me give you an example of that. An example is when you take your subject property, let's say it has a garage, and let's say that you've done some research, you talk to a few people, and you find out that a, a house that has a garage usually brings $10,000 more than a house that doesn't have a garage. Okay, So you're going to take that $10,000, the value of that garage, and you're going to add that to the sales price of the comparable property, therefore making it equal in kind to the subject property. You follow me? So now we're comparing... If this thing had a garage, it would be worth $10,000 more, so we're going to add it, and now it becomes a like-kind comparable. On the flip side of that, if the comparable happens to be superior on a specific feature, then you have to make a downward adjustment to the comparable property. Okay, Again, we're never going to touch the subject property, only the comparable property. An example would be if the comparable property has a swimming pool. Okay, So let's pretend our, we got a comp. It's 123 Anywhere Street, and 123 Anywhere Street has a pool in the event that it has a pool you might deduct say i don't know fifteen thousand dollars you've done your research you found out that the pool is worth fifteen thousand dollars in that market in other words houses with pools in that neighborhood sell generally for fifteen thousand dollars more so in that case you would deduct fifteen thousand dollars from the value of the comparable property because of that difference What's important to note here is that under no circumstances do you adjust the value of the subject property. Yes, I've said that three, four times now in this episode because that is the biggest mistake people do is they get that backwards. You always make adjustments to the comparables. So at the end of the day, let's say you've got three comparables and you've adjusted those three comparables and they, they come out in a valuation of 100, 105, and 100. So how you would do that basically then is you can you can divide those sales prices together, those adjusted sales prices together to come up with an average. So if it was if that was a hundred thousand, right? And a hundred and five thousand and a hundred thousand, we're gonna take that and add those together. That gives us three hundred and five thousand, and we're gonna divide those 
by three, that means the average sales price for houses similar to the subject property in that neighborhood run about 101000 Now, I understand that most realtors, every wholesaler in town, they all use come up with ARV by using a square foot method. Now, the square, square foot method has its flaws because it's not a true valuation. It really doesn't base on anything. Well, this house sold for $60 a square foot, and that one sold for $800 a square foot. Well, if you're not making adjustments there, you're going to come up with inaccurate math. And this is what a lot of flippers get themselves in trouble with is they find out their valuations are way wrong because they use square foot method. Instead, focus on the entire enchilada, the whole thing, the whole picture to make sure that you're adjusting for, well, this one has a garage and this one doesn't have a garage. This one's a three bedroom and this one's a two bedroom. Uh, this one has a big oak tree out front and this one has no trees. Uh, this one has an older roof and this one has a newer roof. Speaking of which, and repairs. You can come up with a ballpark idea on how to estimate repairs. Uh, let's say, for example, a roof costs $10,000. And the house that you're adjusting for, the, the comparable, the, your house has a brand new roof. So you're going to want to add that to the subject property, to the uh, comparable property, so it's equal, right? Let's say the one that sold the comparable property doesn't have a new roof. And if that roof costs you ten grand, you are going to add ten grand to that property, so it will be equal. That way you're balancing things out, right? Balancing things out so it makes sense. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you found value in, the, in this episode. I wanted to make sure that you somebody I give you some feedback on how to evaluate properties because this is one of the biggest mistakes I see people making. They're just very careless and not they're not clear. They're relying on a real estate agent. Real estate agents, I got to tell you, they don't teach very much of this in the real estate school. And usually a lot of realtors I see go for the square foot method, which I don't believe is, is accurate, as accurate as it should be. And when you are making a speculation play, like flipping a house or flipping a property, you need to be as close to accurate as you possibly can. And you also need to be using the data. That's what a summary here. You want to determine value the same way your buyer will. Okay, the same way your buyer will. Well, I, I think my house is worth 200000 Yes, but every other metric out there says it's worth a hundred, which means you're never going to see 200000 for your property there, bucko, because no, there's no way to prove that value. There's no, no, no appraisals ever going to come in that high. Therefore, you're wasting your time unless you want to hold the paper and people are like, oh, I don't want to hold paper. I want all my money now. Well, that being said, ladies and gents, you need to get good at valuating property. This is how you do it. If you found value in this episode, drop me an email. Go to info at cashflowguys.com. Write me an email. Let me know what you thought. If you need more information, you want more information on, on this episode, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, by the way. And go over to, to uh, YouTube, type in Cashflow Guys, uh, Cashflow Guys on YouTube, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm putting more and more content on there every day. All kinds of good stuff coming your way, and we appreciate you being part of the community. If you are not part of our Facebook group, Go to cashflowguys.com forward slash group. Catch up with the next week. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn. Head over to cashflowguys.com and contact Tyler and his team for more powerful tips and ideas. So you can start generating multiple streams of income and escape the rat race.